Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome back to the Future Content Podcast. Richard's back. Whenever you guys are listening to this, Richard is now back from Tokyo. So, <laughs> welcome back. Miserable, terrible trip. I'm sorry for, I'm not sorry Tokyo. For, I'm sorry for being so boastful on my on our, on our last podcast, but Tokyo was great and uh, the rugby was terrible. Rich, Richard's been trying to entice me to um, go to Tokyo because it's so clean. Um, and uh, anyway, well, we weren't going to that. But anyway, today um, in the studio we've got a really, really um, well, a good friend of ours um, and someone who's done a lot. Not in um, not like the other guests that we've had who predominantly come out of healthcare. Um, uh, Eric comes out of um, uh, life sciences more specifically. He does a lot of work in rare diseases, etc. Um, and was formerly the chief exec of Myeloma UK, um, and still does a lot of work in in this space. But as opposed to me doing um, a lot about Eric, I'll let Eric introduce himself. Eric. Welcome. Well, thanks. It's great, great to be here. And Orlando, you've done a much better job than me of describing who I am and what I do in my past. But as you say, I was formerly CEO of Milam UK, which is a patient organization, disruptive advocacy, medical research organization. So I've got 25 years of experience of working within the kind of patient organization group. But in doing that and doing it well, you become an honest broker. And to represent patients well, you've got to engage with payers, commissioners, life sciences, data companies, government. Um, so I've, I'm steeped in in a background of being an honest broker and bringing all these different stakeholders and decision makers round the table and sort of unifying their thinking around common goals and, and actually trying to do what's best for patients to get it, to get outcomes, what what's good for taxpayers in terms of efficient use of money, but also importantly generating uh, reasonable feedbacks for, for industry and all the other stakeholders that are involved because you know that's an important part of the ecosystem and it drives innovation and we need innovation to solve uh, future healthcare problems. So, so, well, sounds awesome. What is, um, you know, if, if you were to describe um, the vertical in, in you know, healthcare life sciences, um, uh, that you you enjoy the most and that you focus most of your time on is it rare disease or is it um, uh, patient advocacy? What, what is it? So I, I, I think it's it's across the board. I mean, seeing things through a rare disease spectrum is is uh, really challenging. There are some specific challenges within rare disease, but but also in more common disease, there's also challenges. And and the evidence would suggest that you know, drug companies, biotech, are still not very good at generating evidence in common disease. Uh, and we have all these additional challenges in in rare disease. So I think across the board, I think there's real challenges in figuring out what evidence do we need. And historically, it was all about regulatory evidence. If a company, through the lens of a drug, could prove safety and efficacy, it would get marketing authorization. And in the past, payers were price acceptors, they would take it. Um, it's very different now. We have all these uh, uh, downstream or upstream, should I say, uh, hurdles for, for, for data. And payer and, and HTA archetypes have a whole bunch of different criteria uh, and, and data needs that simply is just not available in an FDA regulatory data set and if you again you just look through an oncology at lens there's an increasing trend towards earlier and earlier approvals so phase two single arm studies 
uh, in a hundred patients with nine months follow-up. Mm. I mean, I would argue that's <laughs> that's worse than knowing nothing about the drug because now you know <laughs> things and there's lots of un uncertainty and this gets sort of championed through the system in this belief that patients are demanding this and that's who we're accountable to. We've no evidence whatsoever that patients are demanding this because they don't really understand potential benefits and risks of, of, of these types of uh, treatment and they come through the system and ultimately through a UK lens or any CADIS in Canada uh, pairs are under pressure. So what happens is the company offers up a commercial deal mm. to buy off the uncertainty. That That's great for the company to some extent because they get revenue, they get access, it's great for the health system, they manage the budget. The big problem is all that risk transfers onto patients and we're all patients. Mm. So the system doesn't work. It's not joined up enough in my and, opinion. And here's, here's a question, right? Um, I, I don't know if you know the answer, but I'm curious. For every um, you know X drug that gets approved, how many get you know um, uh, 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 kicked out um, and into the sort of uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean the very vast majority of drugs uh, fail. So the analogy, uh, because I'm I'm not I'm normally the dumbest person in the room, so I always have to think in analogies, and it's a bit like going onto a football pitch, I think, with a blindfold, and you're told that there's two goals at either end, and there's a bunch of footballs on the pitch. And you just go out and you just kick and kick and kick and kick and kick until you can't kick anymore. And eventually you'll hear the back of the net go once or twice because you've just by luck or by serendipity or just by pure probability, you've managed to get a shot on target. And people in industry tell me that's what it's like using conventional methods for drug discovery. So the failure rate is massive. Does it need to be like that? Are there other ways in which we can look at through different types of probes and chemistry and different things, actually define the problem and then design a drug specifically for that problem. So uh, that's really interesting. And I, the question that I got, sort of niggling away, I'm fascinated by you know, genomics and personalised medicine. I'm thinking, you know, remembering when the, the human genome was first decoded and the cost of that and how long it took. And now hearing companies that, you know, have got the computing power to decode to decode me in twenty minutes, and I think mm. this is just extraordinary. But how? So my question would be: How do you think, given what you've just said, the sort of shift towards personalised medicine, um, you know, will in, will influence for for better or worse that kind of you know that that kind of that kind of scenario sure. to use what's there? So the genomics revolution has got a massive potential and lots of excitement, but. It needs focus, it needs rational thinking. You know, what we thought we knew 10 years ago is very different to what we thought thought now. So it needs to move at a pace and it needs to move in a unified direction of travel. It feels a little bit like a, a feeding frenzy. And what we need for genomics is very much a demand side. So if we were to build a house this weekend, we, or to start building a house, we wouldn't even think about it without a set of architects' drawings. There would be a blueprint. And even then, it'll be the third most stressful thing in your life to, to <laughs> do you built it. a house recently? <laughs> Never, but I know people that have. Mostly who've you know, worked in pharma and can afford to do it. But, um, 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 you know, and what we don't have is a demand side. So if we take any particular therapeutic area and any specific cancer or rare disease within that therapeutic area, what is the blueprint? 
What are the priorities? You know, what are the mechanisms? And how do we use that to disrupt, push that back into the genomics clinical development uh, continuum? So that actually what we're bringing through the system is not a, well, let's hope there's a problem to fix at the end. We've clearly defined what that problem is and there's unanimous and unifying agreement on that and we're kind of bringing it through the system. So I think that the, that the demand and supply sides in genomics need to kind of hook, to hook up. I think we need to manage expectation as well. It's complex, it's difficult. There are people with brains the size of planets in laboratories and in hospitals and institutions that scratch their head with this stuff. So on one hand, you've got a genetics, a genomic readout, and then it's, how do you operationalize that? How do you, how do you design a drug? And what changes over time with genetics or epigenetics? And, and how much don't we know that may still yeah. be running in the background? So it's, it's massively promising, but it's fraught with potential banana skins, and it needs careful management. Do you think, just a follow-up to that, do you think it yeah, will be yeah, particularly helpful in a, in a rare disease environment? For sure, for sure. But, you know, the kind of challenges as well is that do you, you know, so there's a number of cell and gene therapies that are coming through the system that offer massive hope. There are six or 7,000 rare diseases that are treated to some extent. Not all are treated because there's no treatments for many, so it's best supportive care or... Um, but it, it, it's unlikely there's going to be, you know, 6,000 cell and gene therapies. So it, it will be for a small number of rare diseases annually. So we're on a long, long trajectory where we solve the issue of rare diseases. And when we think about rare diseases, the heterogeneity that exists within that broad portfolio is massive. A cell and gene therapy may not always be the needed solution. It could just be surgery. It could just be, you know, um, some other other type of uh, drug. So that's why individuals who are involved in a specific rare disease area need to design that blueprint. They need to understand to the the best way they can, how do we solve the problem of genetic disorder A, B, C, or D? Get the blueprint and then go back to the lab and say, right, how do we bring through a, a genetics core, a clinical core, you know, a medicines optimization yeah. core with laser sharp focus on what we think, to the best of our knowledge, is what that disease needs. Yeah. That's super helpful. Here's a question that, um, so at the moment, you know what we see, and we were just coming back from from a meeting um, uh, in, in sort of health, right? What we see um, in this country, across the planet, etc., is everyone um, looking at how do we reduce costs, how do we drive up quality, how do we improve um, our patient access, right, and an overall patient experience, and um, and everyone is is continues to struggle with it. Um, what is what is what is the version of that in in life sciences? You know, what are people really struggling with um, uh, in terms of um, getting drugs to the market? First of all, outside of kind of data, right? Um, and also, what role is the patient? How active is the patient? How, how involved are the patients in that process? So, I, I think the challenge that, that health systems have, I think, is. Um, that they're presented with a value proposition that might look like 10 out of 10, it might look like 5 out of 10, it might look like 1 out of 10, and they just have to make an assessment on that. Health systems uh, have 
huge competing challenges and interests, most of which center around allocation of scarce mm-hmm. resources. So they need to manage, rightly or wrongly, every single budget that they have very, very carefully. Uh, and there's a particular focus on the drugs budget. So when they're under pressure to adopt a new drug, their primary goal here is to manage the budget. So cost containment. Cost containment is very different from efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think there is some confusion between cost containment, um, which means that we're, we're cutting money, cutting money, and we're not really thinking about outcomes. Whereas efficiency is you can cut money out of the system but outcomes stay the same or get better. And that's what I think we don't do particularly well because the lens at which we're looking it through is often very, very uh, time sensitive. There's often media, there's often advocacy. You know, think about the recent stuff with Vertex. Everybody's <laughs> under pressure to say, to say yes. And we may look back and say, well, had we thought about that differently, we might not have said yes, or we would have said yes differently. And we would have been able to think about the efficiency part yeah, yeah, as well yeah, as the yeah. cost containment part. Mm-hmm. So, so from a, a patient advocacy perspective, most patient advocacy tends to show up you know, when we're approaching these difficult HTA pair discussions. And, and that, unfortunately, is a terrible time for advocacy because what can you do? You know, it's so difficult and it kind of, it's evidence of so many missed opportunities about saying, well, actually, what advocacy you should be doing is saying to clinicians and saying to researchers and, and different people in the multidisciplinary team, what are the research priorities? What are the things we need? Let's get the evidence for that. And we, as the patient community, will hold suppliers, whether they be commercial, institutional, academic, to account to be laser sharp focused on what we believe to be the priority. So we're allocating the scarce resources in any disease uh, to the research that's most likely to make the biggest difference. And we've run this past pairs in HTA bodies. We've said, this is our blueprint. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Can we get your input Mm. into this at an early stage? And if I'm a small biotech going to an investor and I tell them that story, surely that's that's a better bet for the investor right that there's a laser sharp focus here that 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 we've been upstream i get confused between downstream and upstream but but we've been up to and everybody yeah. tells corrects me differently but 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 we've been upstream we've spoken to the market we've dialed into the blueprint we've engaged with early scientific advice we've spoken to uh, whatever uh, commercial teams that might be available in different health systems, you know, not including the US, of course. And then we, we come back and we've got this great plan. What do you think? There's less risk attached. I like it. To I, that, I you like know? it. <laughs> and so advocacy needs to fundamentally change. Uh, and I say that with the greatest respect because some of these rare disease communities, particularly, are, are, are made up of just, just mothers and fathers of, of, of children. But even when you look at the big, big, organizations in the even in the UK that I will not name mm-hmm. I mean what are they doing <laughs> you know they're, they're not thinking strategically they're not they're not advocating in the right way on behalf of their constituents it, it's not that what they're doing is necessarily 
you know, terrible, but but they're just not showing up in the right places, and we need to front load it. So, no, no, so, so here's a question: You mentioned rare diseases and and you know the struggles there, right? Um, and many have got a drug that that um you know responds to it. Um, many have got nothing, and it's simply you know how do we ensure that you can have a quality of life that makes sense, right? Um, in the second category. What 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 rare disease comes to mind that you think actually I wish I could have a drug that responds to this? I mean, there's so many. There's Duchenne. There's Pompeii. I mean, I there are. Choose one. <laughs> um, well, I mean, just uh, Duchenne, for example. You know. Um, so for, for our listeners who don't know a lot about Duchenne, and probably some of us in the studio. What is it? Well, it's it's a it's mostly in 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 young boys, and it's a sort of neurological kind of muscle wasting weakness type uh, disease that is progressive. It's very debilitating, uh, obviously for the patient, but clearly for the family members. Uh, it's really debilitating, and there aren't any treatments, uh, and that's true of most rare diseases. And and this is the important thing: there is not one rare disease that's necessarily more needy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. than the other. These are all horrible, devastating diseases uh, for the patients and, 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 and kind of family no, 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 no. I, I... members. Um, but when you, when you look at, and there's some great things happening in Duchenne, and I do believe it's a standout uh, area where, where they're actually now engaging, for example, with HD impairs and developing a Duchenne economic model like for it. example so there's it's called project Her hercules so it's it's you know it's it's got a lot of work to do but conceptually and in theory this is exactly what should be uh, happening where they're taking control and they're developing a duchenne specific model so when you think about these rare d disease communities in terms of what type of research they're funding you know natural history studies are not easy but really important patient reported outcomes are important mm -hmm. when you think about six minute walking tests as a PRO well it may be it's not important for the patient to walk for six minutes it mm -hmm. might be important for them to be able to climb stairs yeah, yeah. so they can go to the toilet yeah. and not have an accident you know so really trying to see things through the lens of patients yeah. uh, and this is about connecting demand and supply is we make so many assumptions around what it is patients and their families want and the system is is a sort of science translational model, yeah. so it flows from left to right. It's not from patients to discovery yeah, 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 yeah. And, and back again. And yeah. that's where we... So if you were to ask me the question, future <laughs> of healthcare, it's much more about from patients to discovery and back again. How do we create a better demand side? How do we do patient preference elicitation exploration studies? Do we understand burden carer burden, sibling burden, do we know what benefit risk profiles patients would attach to a chemotherapy treatment or a end of life um, cancer therapy that may have a 20% chance of, of working? Uh, if it does work, it may give you a three month benefit, but there's an 80% chance of chronic diarrhea and fatigue. Mm. So if you're trading time if you're 50, 60, 70, it doesn't matter. Is that how... It's tough. 
it's yeah. tough but nobody's talking about this right. there's no data that's not what the daily mail talk about so, it's not what the patients talk about when they're picketing outside the nice office so here's a question for me actually i'm, I'm curious and genuinely i don't know the answer right um let's say you know richard and i started um richard and and orlando um pharma inc right um, and you know, we got we woke up. We thought, well, you know what, we should create a drug for something, um, uh, and we're going to have to make some money. We're going to have to get some all that good stuff, right? So we're going to have to have a case to come up with this drug. Um, uh, we we go out, we you know, create whatever, um, and we then go to market. We try to get approvals, blah 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 blah. And the question in that, in in my own mind, is how does be it um, uh, a new um, you know pharma firm or or one of the larger ones. How how do they how do they decide what drug to go after? Is it heavily researched before they say we'll invest in diabetes or in rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is, right? Or is it um, is there a different way that they do? How do they do it? I think there's a multitude of different ways that. So the important thing about the life sciences industry or pharma or biotech is it, it isn't one one entity. It's made up of. You know, it's like the kind of proverbial box of chocolates. It, 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 there are so many different types of, of pharma kind of biotech, and each one has different requirements. For example, a company who has a certain investment structure will be on the hook for delivering certain endpoints, certain yeah, yeah. data, because of who's on their board from their, in, their investment firms. Other companies may make uh, pro promises to NASDAQ about revenue of x and that is their single focus some of the ethics or whatever yeah some companies are saying well look i'm only in this for five minutes i want to sell and therefore i need to do this to sell there are so many different ways that 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 the pharma industry is is kind of set up and it kind of ranges from pure exploitation financially to actually individuals who want to be more ethical and more social about medicines development and medicines um Pricing, so it's very hard to pinpoint exactly okay. how how it happens. Some is spun out from universities. We've got spin-out companies who, of course, are only genuinely probably motivated by we can make a whole bunch of money here. Yeah. You know, they're not always thinking about <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand. You know, yeah. Sorry. So, so just if just to cut in on that, because I one of the questions I got in my mind was around. Yeah, the role of pharma in the future, and obviously, you know, as you, as you said, it's a box of chocolates, it's not, not one single entity, but for me, there's, you know, healthcare provision is changing, and, and, and something that I could imagine pharma becoming more involved in is, is not just the, 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 the creation, the selling of the product, but the, the management of sure. the patient groups whilst they're consumers of that product, and it's, it's sort of, can you, can you, can you see that being a being a bigger part of the role of, of pharma life sciences yeah, biotech in the future? Potentially. I mean lots of people that are way smarter than me have kind of postulated what the future pharma might might look like. What's for certain is it won't look like it looks at the moment. That that is absolutely for sure because it, you, you can see the cliff edge coming pretty pretty quickly. So for so for example, is if we look at it say four four, four cores, one is how do I generate as a supplier of evidence better evidence? So can I move from this concept of generating data for the regulator to how do we create value? Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and if we're focused on creating value, then the regulator is one one step in that process. But ultimately, we want to create value. Recognizing that science and clinical development is tricky. It's not like widgets. It's it's tricky. So we may end up actually in front of a pair or an HTA body with some data that looks absolutely as good as we could have expected, where everybody is signed up to that, but there's still some residual uncertainty, and therefore I need to offer up a discount or some commercial agreement or conditional approval that's appropriate and sensible to the level of uncertainty that's left. So you're not just buying off crazy uncertainty, because if you went to the car garage today, and you know they wanted to sell your car for a hundred grand, and they said, "Oh, by the way, before you drive it off, it's got a ten percent chance of getting you home." You're still not going to buy it. Yeah. You kind of need a ninety-nine point nine percent chance it's going to work, and that 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 off chance yeah. that you know you're going to take it. So so you've kind of got the data, you've you've got the mechanism for the residual uncertainty. Then what what do you do beyond the pill, as it were? What's that added value mm. you can bring into the system in terms of information, funding nurses, or something yeah, yeah, that yeah, that yeah, really yeah. moves things that's forward? The bit, yeah, that's the bit that I yeah, yeah. I, I I can see the value in that. I, you know, because again, if I've made something that's you know, if if uh, if the Parky Agrippa farmering could you know <laughs> developed a product, you know, I'd I'd be a bit nervous about just letting it float so, out there. I might want to so this is the, something around it. So this is the works. potential innovation. Um, and, and we have to be clear about um, everything's experimental, not innovative until it actually gets into the market <laughs> and it's proven to work. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right, is we're obsessed around getting access, but how do we know that the clinical environment in which patients are receiving these drugs is optimal and reflects best yeah. practice? Because if we're not doing holistic needs assessments, if we're not risk assessing patients for adherence, they could go off into the community with complex oral regimens, and they may have three or four different other conditions for which they're taking treatments for. They may have complex, difficult home lives with children, with pets, with you know uh, relationship issues, or caring for elderly people with Alzheimer's. They're not solely just thinking about their drug regimen, and they don't take their drugs. What, what's it all been for? Yeah, so this yeah, yeah, added value yeah. beyond the pill yeah. bit is critically important into optimizing uh, healthcare. Are patients receiving drugs in, in the right location? So again, thinking about what does the future of healthcare look like? Virtual healthcare, healthcare at home. We have no, I don't see any publications saying this is what patients want. They want virtual healthcare. <laughs> you know, some patients actually are quite happy being treated in the hospital. But I, 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 you know, but I suppose to that question, you know, maybe, 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 um, maybe pharma um, or drug providers or drug developers think actually, our job is to develop great drugs, get it approved, and get it to market. Someone else's job, be it primary care, secondary, whoever, right? And governments, your job is to ensure that you've got really great wraparounds um, for a drug to ensure that you know there's stronger adherence, stronger uh, adoption and better outcomes. So that's a system that, that works but that's not how the system's constructed but in a demand and supply environment a drug company shouldn't just develop a drug it could be great but there's no point in sitting down to lunch and you've got a plate of tomato soup and somebody gives you a fork. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a stupid fork, right? You know, so it, it's this connecting up the great science and really 
good, whether it's precision or personalized or stratified medicines development, but with a laser sharp focus on having identified a clear demand side need and the two things connect up. That's where we kind of need to be. So here's a question for you then, right? And you've got to, you don't, don't dodge this question because we need an answer, right? Um, you know, we've got, we've got um, seven point something billion people across the planet, um, you know, loads of countries, all that good stuff, right? With everything um, that, you know, we can imagine, someone's already kind of probably working on it. And with everything that, um, with a lot of things that we, we want improvements in, someone is probably, you know, halfway there or, or even 90% there, right? Who is doing this sort of stuff well from drug development? And you don't have the name of, um, if, it, if it makes the, the series uncomfortable, but you know, which country is doing it well? Or, or so, where, where have you seen it work well? Right. So, great question. <laughs> I recognize I said four cores earlier, we got to three, not the fourth. The fourth one is a data solution. Yes. So assuming that things will move into a conditional approval, we need to package up how we're going to collect ongoing data. The other thing I wanted to talk about was just this clarity. Of what does personalized medicine mean? Yeah. Because we always see that through the, the, yeah, the yeah, context yeah, yeah, yeah. of a, a, a drug for a genetic uh, uh, mechanism, but actually doctors do personalized medicine every day. They tailor everything, the, the holistic yeah, package. Yeah, yeah. But so anyway, but getting back to your <laughs> question around um, who's doing it well? Who's doing it well? So I think there are lots of examples of companies doing things well and at least challenging themselves internally to think differently. But it's in the minority. So somebody very senior at a very prominent <laughs> health, uh, sorry, industry body said to me, more or less it's in sort of three categories. There are 30% um, who will just never change. It doesn't matter how many signals you give them about how things are, they'll do it the old way. 30% or so recognize that they need to change, but they're struggling with understanding how to do it. They're trying things. Yeah. And there's 30% that get it, but are actually a little cautious about putting the head above the parapet and being brave and courageous enough to really think outside the box, to, to really embrace the, the kind of future. Lots of really cool, exciting things going, but you just wonder if it's around, I do this because it sounds like the right thing to do, or I really think this is the right thing to do. So I've seen many companies hemorrhage gazillions of pounds on digital stuff that they just haven't thought through but of course they wanted to be into the digital kind of space that might be true of the kind of data space the virtual health space so there's lots of good things happening but is it happening in any company across the continuum of R&D yeah. clinical development commercial market access optimization it needs to there needs to be a a way in which industry does business that, that uh, integrates all aspects of that business so the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In my experience, sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So each individual uh, and each team, they go into work genuinely trying to do the right thing, but they're working within a system potentially that is not connected and doesn't work. So you kind of rock up to entry for the, entry for the Grand National and you need a sort of really incredible racehorse with incredible stamina and power and jumping ability and you open up your your 
and uh, horse box and you see a donkey so you know it, it feels a bit like that you know and then we shoehorn that that donkey into the into the uh, race we, you know we lower a couple of fences we shorten it it feels like we're not optimizing it so, so, so that's part of the problem but in turn the, the whole health system needs to be in sync with that and that's why I keep coming back to demand and supply is that yeah. we need to connect up these these two important components and then figure out who the critical stakeholders are and, and how do they play better together how are they much more aligned around common goals yeah. how does everybody win how do we get the incentives right at each stage so that what comes through the system is actually what the system needs rather than what each individual with a vested interest at different time points needs. And that has to be one vision of the future of yeah. healthcare. That's great. What's the, and we're getting closer in time, but here's another one. What is the, and you only have one, what is the, in the last decade, two decades, pick a period, right? Um, not too far back and you can't say penicillin. What's the um, most transformational drug that you've seen, you know, come to market and you thought, wow, um, that is really doing this and I did not anticipate that. Like, what about it? So, again, it's a tough question because... So, in my, through my lens, it would be thalidomide and myeloma. Because here's a story of tragedy, mostly, yeah. from thalidomide. And then through a very curious route uh, that we don't have time to go into, but it's a very interesting story for another day, is, is that, that, that we discovered that um, thalidomide was active in, in myeloma. Uh, and of course, that, that was very difficult and very challenging around licensing thalidomide and, and most of the regulatory framework that we have today is as a consequence of, of the horrible history of uh, thalidomide. Uh, you know, how do we make this widely available for a fairly common cancer? And it was a very difficult period of getting uh, the regulators and, and the thalidomide victims groups all aligned. But it transformed uh, treatment in myeloma from a disease that we were treating with malphalan, basic chemotherapies that came out of germ warfare stuff in the 50s and 60s wow. uh, into a, 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 a disease that people, it was doubling survival, this kind of one, one drug. It, the drug in itself had its pros and cons, but it then had uh, the brothers and sisters of thalidomide, so lenalidomide, pomalidomide, but what it did is it opened up that disease and then other players came in with prosome inhibitors yeah. and what are called antibodies. And you could argue in any disease setting, the myeloma story has been one of the most successful on one hand, but I would argue failure on the other because we've had multiple new treatments, I think, you know, six in the last four or five years. Um, and, and survival has almost quadrupled in most patients that don't have high risk disease. So that's an incredible story of transformation where in two decades, We've taken a cancer that people lived with for a few months to a few years into you can live 10, 15, 20 years if you've got low or intermediate risk disease. If you've got high risk disease, it's a different story. My challenge is, had we had the blueprint, yeah, yeah, yeah. would yeah. we use these drugs differently? And if so, would it be curable by now, even with the same 
drugs. And this is an important point in healthcare is to take time out. So there are hundreds of millions of dollars now going into myeloma drug development. But do we need it? Because if we were to optimize, for example, currently available therapy and organize it in the right combinations, in the right sequence, how much more life could we give patients yeah, yeah, yeah. just with current therapy? Yeah. You know, and then should then the focus be on younger patients who may who may need more efficacy because they have longer to live and patients of any age group we've got high risk disease who are unfortunately will die quickly if we've reallocated all the scarce that are not scarce but quite a lot <laughs> into that area we would be fixed that in the next five and ten years and then you've got a true success story but of course it comes back to are we aligned are we unified are the incentives in the right place who's got the blueprint where are the advocates yeah, saying yeah. actually guys it's not a feeding frenzy. You need to think strategically about this. No, no, I love it. And, you know, I'm, I'm tempted, um, uh, uh, unless um, Richard's got anything else, I'm, I'm tempted to, um, to ask our last question. However, I think you've, you know, you've answered it in, in so many ways, but, but I will ask it um, in a slightly different way, right? So, you know, we, I think our listeners, and, and we can imagine what, um, what the future of, uh, of, of healthcare from a sort of life sciences perspective looks like um, from you, as, as you kind of alluded to earlier, right? Um, but as an individual, uh, you know, Eric, Eric Lowe, um, uh, is the future for you um, one where you think, you know, in the next five, 10 years, um, that will be chips and, you know, you, 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 all of your, your sort of um, medicines and your interactions with physicians, etc., are all interlinked into the body. Like, what does that look like to you? What does the future of healthcare look like in terms of your know, individual care and how it's connected to healthcare, to drugs? Is it devices? What have you got in mind? So it needs to be, I think it will be more, much more integrated where healthcare will be a package of the treatment, some added value, kind of beyond the pill, some data requirements, some health tracking yeah. type requirements, and some sort of kind of monitoring type device that will all feed up to a cloud, and that cloud will then end up somewhere, and there will be beautiful, uh, <laughs> sophisticated analytics that can then be used for driving future R&D and kind of innovation. What's absolutely important about it, though, is that we must, it must be an evidence-based vision. So we need to align what it is we think patients want now in the future, what, do, what does healthcare see itself doing in terms of uh, virtual kind of healthcare, and it must be one that has the ability to reflect the heterogeneity that we have in people and patients. So it needs to be agile and adaptive, so we've got every patient receiving the treatment they want that's effective for their disease based on a strong evidence base, receiving the treatment when, where they need it, when they need it, um, and in the right location and, and a system that can adapt to if that should change in any one individual we can effortlessly move them from one care environment and care package into another okay I'll ask you we've got like a nanosecond right I'll ask you <laughs> four, I'll spit out four words um, and you, you'll give me um, four really sharp um, well thought through answers um, where's the last place you visited holiday wise I'm curious. Spain. All right. Um, what's your favorite food? Steak and chips. Ooh. All right. Um, what was the last book you read? 
Tuesdays with Maureen. And what show are you watching now or last movie that you've watched? That you enjoyed? The ones, right? <laughs> last movie was way, way back. <laughs> All right. Done. Anything else in your No, 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 no. <laughs> I think Eric's going to set up a racing tips uh, podcast. <laughs> 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 no, no, don't. No, no, don't. After this, right? I'll, yeah. I'll probably <laughs> lose my job, so <laughs> I'll, I'll right, probably maybe. need to look for I something think, else I think to, there's a book to coming do. out called No More Donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like Listen, it's been a pleasure to have you, and um, I'm sure um, that you will continue to fight the good fight for um, patients with rare disease. Um, and and innovate in in life sciences, but it's been a pleasure. Thanks, no Eric. Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much. <laughs>